Good morning, Cornerstone. Today's scripture reading will be from Ruth, chapter 1. I'll be reading from the NIV, um, and you can read along with me. ESV or? Oh, ESV, sorry. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moab, Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, and each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. 
Amen. Thank you, Felix. Uh, especially, uh, you know, uh, the names of Limelech and Malone, Kilian, those are a little tough. So you did a great job. Thank you, brother. So again, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to our worship service. I'm Paul. I'm one of the pastors of our church. It's great to see you all. Uh, thank you for all of those of you joining us online as well. Uh, we hope that you are encouraged and enlightened by his word today and by the prayers that we pray, the singing of songs, and we hope and pray that you will uh, experience the, the grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, today we're starting a new series, a short series through the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is very short. It's only four chapters, so we'll be doing that for the four, next four weeks. We're going to uh, do a chapter each week, and today we read the first chapter, and uh, essentially we see um, a small snapshot of God's redeeming work here. In, in, in the Old Testament, um, we see uh, it's not only in Jesus that we have redemption, but we see God showing redemption to his people even in the Old Testament. So it's a great picture of that in the story of Ruth. So this first chapter introduces the background of the story, and interestingly, it does not begin with Ruth. The story begins with a Ephrathite family from Bethlehem, which is in the southern kingdom of Judah. So this is after the kingdom, uh, the Israel kingdom divided and became two separate kingdoms, and Judah is the southern kingdom at this point. And so um, this family is from that southern kingdom, and, and uh, this, unfortunately go, they, uh, this family unfortunately goes down some difficult paths um, as we see. It, if, it leads to going through famine and ultimately death. Uh, Elimelech and Naomi are the father and mother of this family. The, they're the, the patriarch and the matriarch that we see here. They go off into a foreign land called Moab, and there are two sons they bring along with them, Malone and Kilion. And, because, and they do so because there was a famine happening in Bethlehem at the time. And uh, if we know how famines work in the Old Testament, a lot of the times they are a divine punishment by God for his people's disobedience. So this kind of gives a signal that they perhaps shouldn't be leaving, right? You shouldn't be avoiding this punishment from God, knowing that this is a part of God's divine will. However, they do so, and we can't really blame them for doing so. Who would you know, blame this family for leaving a famine-ravaged place and, and seeking to find a place with food. They were hungry in need of sustenance, and they decided to go to a foreign land, and Moab is approximately, they say, 50 miles away uh, across the Dead Sea to where, presumably, they heard that there was no famine, there was food there. And, and it shows in our passage that this was supposed to be a temporary journey, right? They say, they use the word sojourn, and sojourn has this connotation of just passing through. So uh, they intentional, they, uh, their first intention was to just pass through, to stay there temporarily, but their sons end up getting married to these foreigners, to these Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And that's where we finally see Ruth into the picture. And as a result, they were most likely uh, planning to live in Moab permanently. Now, uh, marrying Moabite women or foreign women was not necessarily against the law, the Jewish law, in a formal sense, 
but it was frowned upon. It was highly discouraged. They were supposed to marry fellow Jews. And that is mainly because of who you worship. When you go to these foreign lands, they do not worship the same true God. They did not worship the the true God that we worship. They worshiped a false God, a different God. And there was a lot of tension between the Moab people and the Jews. And um, because of that, this was not really looked at um, as, as a good thing to do. And eventually we see that Elimelech dies in Moab. He never even gets to go back to his homeland. And then uh, 10 years after that, his two sons die. And the names of his two sons are actually very significant because the names Malon and Kilion mean sick and wasting away. That's literally what those names mean. And you might be thinking, wow, why would they name their kids sick and wasting away? That's kind of crazy, right? But it shows kind of what this family was most likely dealing with um, when, even when the children were born. Um, they were born probably enduring a lot of suffering, as uh, the Jews often did. They endured a lot of suffering, and, and this is around the time of the judges, and we see that there was a lot of ups and downs during that period, and it reflects uh, this incredibly different, difficult circumstances that they were going through. And unfortunately, it does foreshadow their eventual death, which most likely was due to sickness and a sort of wasting away. And Elimelech's name, on the other hand, means my God, my king. And Naomi's name means pleasant. And so, you know, this is very promising. Elimelech's name is promising because it appears that uh, his family worshipped the true God, to name your son my king, my God. Um, and there's evidence that but there is, but, and there is no evidence he worshipped, but there is no evidence that he actually worshipped God. Instead, he went to a foreign land. So we see a sense where Elimelech has left his God. And Naomi's name, again, means pleasant, but we see that Naomi tells people to call her a different name, to call her Mara. And that literally means bitter, as we saw in our passage. And we see her life is no longer pleasant. Instead, she is filled with bitterness. So Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, are the only ones left here in our passage. Things have gone really, really bad, really, really horribly for this family. And now the rest of the chapter, we will see how these women respond to the suffering that they have endured. From the text that we've read, you can probably tell they don't all respond in the same way. They respond a little differently. So we'll see that and we'll learn from these women, uh, how they respond, and, and may reveal how we are to respond in the midst of suffering. So let, let me pray for us, and we'll go into our text a little bit deeper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will see um, and reveal your truth, Lord, to us, that we will see um, how we are to respond to suffering. Lord God, may the story of Ruth be a reminder to us or to some of us even uh, learning something new about who you are, God, how you have shown love and grace and kindness to us. So, Lord, help us here today. Help us to see your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so my, my dad's side of the family in Korea, he, he, they grew up in, he grew up in Korea, and he grew up in the countryside. 
in, the, in Korea. So most people think of Seoul in Korea. They think of the big city where actually half the country lives in that city, which is kind of crazy. But my dad grew up on a farm on the countryside, a family farm, where he lived a very traditional life. You would call it traditional, in contrast to the more progressive city, western lifestyle that was happening. Um, similar to the story of Ruth, there was a tragedy that occurred in my dad's side of the family where my dad's uncle, his older uncle, so um, it would be my grandfather's older brother, uh, so his great uncle, he, he passed away. And this great uncle was the oldest male of the family, which meant he was the head of the, the entire household. But unfortunately, he died with only one daughter at the time. And so in this traditional setting that they lived, being a woman without a son, and this was like you know the 1950s or so, um, living in a male-dominated society, it meant that they were essentially hopeless and helpless because they were just a woman and her daughter left in this family. And so what happened was, again, this is very traditional, very old school, which would not happen now. And so what happened was my dad was actually the first son of the second oldest male in the family, and he was adopted by my, uh, I call her my grandmother who passed away, but basically my, my, uh, my dad's uncle's wife. Right? That's, my dad was essentially adopted, and he was like five or six years old when this happened. And so he essentially had a new mom and a new sister, and my dad essentially became the patriarch of the family. And it would be his duty to take care of his family as he got older. Now, again, this type of stuff doesn't really happen anymore. But I hope this illustrates a little bit the sense of what has happened to these women in our passage. They no longer had a man to take care of them in a society where they needed a man to take care of them. They had lost all of their means of money and security. They were essentially helpless and hopeless. And so the plan was to just go back to, their, to the homeland for, for Naomi and to hope that someone will take care of her. <clears throat> but <laughs> before this happens, Naomi tries to show kindness to, uh, his daughters -in -law, to her daughters-in-law and, and gives them an out. Right? It's the first time we actually see this Hebrew word hesed being used, which is a theme throughout the book of Ruth. And the word hesed... Uh, basically translates to loving kindness. But it's deeper than just love or kindness. It's like a sense of devotion. It's a de devout love, a devout loyalty. It's a, it's a promise, a covenant love and kindness. And so uh, Naomi prays or, or, or tells his daughter, her daughters-in-law, um, I, I hope that God's hesed will be upon you as you go back to your foreign, you know, go back to your family and leave me. And so this is what she tells them to do or asks them to do. And so, um, yeah, she, she tells them to go back and return to, to return to their family. And at first, the women both respond by saying, no, 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 we'll go back to Judah with you. Like, we'll go back with you. But Naomi insists that they turn back and go to their homes. And the men are gone. They're dead. And there are, there are no other men in the family. 
that will magically appear. And that's the whole thing that um, Naomi was saying, like, oh, am I going to find, find another husband and give birth to someone else, and you're going to wait till that man gets older to marry them? Like, you know, that's ridiculous. Right? You know, she's saying it's not going to magically happen. Right? The hand of the Lord has gone against me. That's what it, she essentially says. Just leave. And when Naomi speaks of the impossibility of having another son to be their household, she's referring to this law, this Jewish law in Deuteronomy 25, that says a fellow relative needs to be the one to replace the deceased husband. It can't just be a random, random guy. It has to be a relative of some sort of the family in order to continue the family name. That was very important in those days, to continue the family name and to preserve the inheritance, the family land, the, the, the wealth of the family. It was the, that was the only way that this could happen. And so Ruth and Orpah just couldn't marry any random Jewish man. They needed to marry a specific type of man, a relative of some sort. And so after all this, Orpah is like, you know, go back. There's no hope of this happening. Like we're going to be, I'm doomed, so just go back to your Moabite families. And so after all that, we see that Orpah does leave, and she goes back to her family. And so let's examine Orpah's response. We see that Orpah responds to suffering by turning away from God. So one common response that we have to suffering is the same. We turn away from God when we endure suffering. And we have to see Orpah's response contrasted with the way Ruth responds, right? Ruth says that I will follow you based on what? The truth of who your God is. That is why she follows Naomi, right? Ruth, Ruth says that I will follow you because I believe in your God. And we'll get to more of that when we get to Ruth. But Orpah obviously does not have that type of faith. It appears that she initially did, and she's about to go with Naomi, back to Bethlehem, but in the end, she does not do so. And one pastor, his name is uh, David Strain, he, he calls Orpah the almost believer, right? The almost believer. Orpah initially shows loyalty to Naomi and wants to be by her side. But after Naomi tells her to reconsider, she decides to leave. Naomi even says, you know, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to the, her people and to her gods. And she mentions God. She mentions that she has left our religion. Orpah has turned away from the true God and turned back to her false gods. Orpah was almost there. She almost went back with Naomi and Ruth, but at the end of the day, Orpah did not truly believe. And perhaps some of us here today are in a similar situation to Orpah. Maybe you grew up in the church going to a local church, you have been around fellow believers, around Christians, and you've seen the commitment to their God and, and to the church, and maybe you even have loyalty, loyalty to some of these believers. Maybe you, you admire some of these believers, but you yourself do not quite believe in the true God. And so we pray and hope that you will see the truth of who God is and what he has done for you. And of course, it is tempting to go back to our false gods. You know, we have felt that before in many ways, I'm sure, all of us. However, the true God, even in the midst of suffering, is better, is sweeter than what any false god offers, anything that the world may offer. The true God is so much better. 
And you may, some of you may even see the benefits of being a Christian. You see um, the, the validity of the message or the, the, the great value of it, and you like the person of Jesus. That's what everyone says, right? Oh, I like Jesus. You know, I like the person of Jesus. But the false gods of the world continue to lure you away from the true God. You know, once I had a conversation with a, a young woman who I knew from a church that I had attended, and she had been a regular attender of that church. She had gone regularly. She appreciated the community um, and, the, and the people and the message, and she really liked this person of Jesus, but she could not fully believe and trust in Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And she even asked me one time, you know, how do you have such confidence in Jesus? And, you know, I didn't feel like I was all that you know, confident or anything like that. But I just remember telling her that more than, you know, the evidence that we may see for Christianity, more than the logical reasoning as to why we believe Christianity makes more sense or as to the reasoning why God is in, true, is in fact a, a true God and why Jesus was a real person, more than all that evidence and all that type of logical thinking and why the scriptures that we believe are truly reliable, what I responded was Jesus has given me so much more joy so much more peace, so much more hope as a Christian than I ever, ever did before. And I see the amazing fruit that the Spirit has produced in others as well and what God has done for them. And she just shared how she struggled with um, letting go of these worldly things, and she cared a lot about the typical things that we all care about, money, success, and, uh, and other things like that. And it was just hard for her to let go of these things. So at the end of the day, I'm not sure if she ended up truly believing in Jesus as her Lord and Savior. The last time we spoke, she did not. She did not trust in the Lord. But my prayer is that since that time that she has, or that the Lord will eventually soften her heart to believe one day. And that is my prayer for all of you who may be in a similar position, that God will open your heart and soften your heart to truly believe in Jesus, that he will help you to see his amazing grace, truth, and love, and peace that he has to offer you, that we can only find in Jesus' death and resurrection and in the victory that he has claimed over sin and death. So may we not turn away from the true God. May we believe in Jesus and trust in him. Next, let's move on, move on to Naomi. Naomi responds to suffering with bitterness. And so another common response to suffering is bitterness, especially towards God. <clears throat> Excuse me. We see that Naomi has lost trust in the Lord to some degree. She even tells Orpah, just, just leave me, right? Go back. Go back to your false God. Even though Naomi herself knows that this is a false God. She says, go back anyway because she genuinely believes that they are better off there than with her. She has become bitter at her circumstances. He even says to call me bitter, right? In verse 20, it says, She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. That's what Naomi says. She believes that God is indeed in charge of all these things and sovereign over all. And it has been his hand that has allowed the suffering to occur to her. And so she doesn't really trust in God any longer. She doesn't trust that he is good, that he is working 
for her good. And again, her response is understandable. We see why she's bitter. Her husband and her two sons have died. She is alone. Not only is she alone, she is hungry. She needs food. She has no money. She has no security. And for us as Christians, we may not have to deal with what Naomi deals with, and I pray that none of us do. But that doesn't mean that suffering is not a reality for us as Christians. Suffering is indeed a reality. And it means that we, and, and it doesn't mean that we get the right to respond the way Naomi does, even though we understand why she does. And so may we be careful in responding to God in bitterness for our circumstances. Because firstly, our suffering may be a consequence of our choices. Right? Even in Naomi's case, you can argue that one reason why they are suffering is because they chose to go to Moab when they probably shouldn't have gone. They probably should not have gone gone there in the first place. And as a result, they may be suffering the consequences of their actions, of going to a foreign land where, when they're supposed to be dedicated to their people and to their God. And many times, even for us, our suffering is a consequence of our own actions, our bad choices that we make. And we have to accept those choices. We are responsible for sin, for our sin. And oftentimes when we sin, that leads to our suffering. Now, not every suffering is a result of sin. I don't want to make that equation. But a lot of times, our sin leads to consequences that lead us to suffer. That is the reality of committing adultery, of lying, of breaking someone's trust. Right? All those sins can lead to suffering, broken relationships, a lot of hardships for us. However, suffering is not the end of the story. It doesn't end with hurt and pain and, and we know that God is truly in charge of all things, truly sovereign, and is truly working for our good at the end. So then how should we respond in suffering? Well, let's look at Ruth's response. Ruth responds to suffering with loyalty and faith to God. You know, let us remember who Ruth is. She is a foreigner. Remember, she is not a Jew. She is a Moabite. She is a foreigner. She had every reason to turn away and go back like Orpah did. But Ruth, even knowing the cost, knowing that it could even lead to death, she even says herself that this may lead to death, following Naomi back to Judah, she, she decides to do so anyway. She cannot help but to follow Naomi because she follows God. She cannot help but to follow the true God, the living God, because he has captured her heart like God has captured so many of our hearts. She trusts in the Lord and even makes an oath to the Lord, promising to devote herself to the true God. And, and she says this, <clears throat> May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She makes this oath, this, this promise to God. Verse 16, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Those famous words that we have heard, I'm sure, before. Now, this may not be the most common response to suffering, but it is the way we are to respond. We are to respond to suffering with loyalty and faith in God, remembering who he truly is. We remember who God is, what he has done for us. We remember that he is the one and only true God who has saved us 
from our sins through Jesus Christ. We remember that he has promised good to us as long as we trust in him and that the sufferings of the world are temporary, but the reward in heaven is eternal. Unlike Naomi, who wallows in her bitterness and and is angry towards God, Ruth instead trusts in the Lord. The truth of God has taken root into her heart and has convinced her that she has to follow Naomi, no matter the cost, because Naomi's God, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God that we believe, the God who has given us Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, he is the true God. George Whitfield, a British preacher who eventually became one of the biggest evangelists in Great Britain and North America, was a prominent figure in America as what's called the First Great Awakening. And so you probably learned this in history class, maybe if you were in high school or in college. It was a big revival movement that occurred in America in the 1700s where Christianity essentially exploded uh, here. And it was in large part due to George Whitfield. He was one of the main preachers who would go around um, as an itinerant speaker. And him and Jonathan Edwards were two of the main people who helped kind of launch this great awakening here in America. But he was a British guy. And, uh, and um, when he became a Christian, um, he, uh, a few, he, he was a Christian in, in his teenage years, and uh, he became a Christian in his teenage years, and he eventually went to Oxford for, for college or university, as they call it. Um, and so he writes this as a 17-year-old, uh, as a newly converted Christian. He writes this recounting kind of his trials, his, his first uh, um, encounter with suffering, so to speak, as a believer. So this is what he says. But when religion began to take root in my heart, and I was fully convinced my soul must totally be renewed, I was visited with outward and inward trials. I incurred the displeasure of the master of the college who threatened to expel me if I ever visited the poor again. I said if it displeased him, I would not. I immediately repented and visited the poor at the first opportunity. My relations counted my life madness. I daily underwent some contempt at college. Some have thrown dirt at me. True friends forsook me. And then he considered the benefits that he received. These, though little, were useful trials. They inured me to contempt, lessened self-love, and taught me to die daily. You know, George Whitfield's heart had been taken captive by Jesus Christ. He was convinced that he needed the gospel. And it was in light of the gospel taking root in his heart that he believed he had no choice but to follow Jesus and to obey him, even if it led to expulsion, even if it led for his friends to forsake him, right? even if it led for people to call him crazy, right? let people to think he's mad. He still did it anyway. Ruth knows that following Naomi may lead to continued suffering and trials, but she follows anyway because the Lord has captured her heart. Now, unlike Ruth, we have the benefit of knowing what is to come. We know what is to come. We have the benefit of knowing, as I said earlier, we have a great reward that is coming for us when we trust and obey the Lord. The end of chapter 1 
hints at a sense of hope coming for Ruth and Naomi as well. It's the beginning of the Harley, uh, not the Harley, the barley harvest, right? Remember, they were in need of food because back in verse 6, it says that Naomi planned to go back partly because the Lord had blessed Judah with food. And so that implies there's a need for food for her. And so this is a hint that there is imminent food, imminent sustenance, imminent provision, and they are going back just at the right time, just as the harvest has come. And so we will see more in this book of Ruth of how God provides all of those things. He provides sustenance. He provides provision. He provides food. He provides all the things that we need. But, but for us here today, we know, we know where our hope rests. It is in Jesus Christ who promises to save us, redeem us, and restore all things who has already done that work through Jesus Christ. And we simply wait for Jesus' return to consummate those things. But some of us may know this and still turn our backs because we see the cost of following Jesus. We see that it is truly costly. We see that suffering is indeed part of being a Christian because the Bible reveals it many times and it says that it will not be easy to turn away from the world and, it, and we will be hated by the world for what we believe. But instead, may we cling to Jesus and not turn away. Cling to Jesus in our difficult trials and sufferings that come and may we not be bitter because of them. You know, maybe some of us here today are bitter because of our situations, um, bitter at especially the Lord for our circumstances. Well, I pray that the Lord will bring you back to him and find refuge, and that you would find refuge in him, that you would see that the Lord is good, that the Lord is faithful. So, friends, brothers and sisters, may we respond to the sufferings we face with loyalty and faith in our God. Because we have the truth. We know the truth. We have hope in the saving work of Jesus Christ. May we cling to that truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing, Lord, the ways in which we are not to respond and the ways we are to respond to the trials and sufferings in our lives. And Lord, we just humbly pray that you would help us in, those, in the midst of those things that we would cling to Jesus. You would cling to Jesus for he is good, he is faithful, he is true. He has revealed that truth on the cross. So God, help us to remember the cross, remember that we have hope in you and hope in him. And so God, we ask that for those of us who struggle to believe this, help us to believe Help us to trust in you. May we not be so enamored with worldly things. May we not be so filled with desires for the things of the world. But Lord, may we be filled with a desire to know you. May you capture our hearts here today so that we cannot help but to follow you, but to live for you. So that we can not only worship you as we, as we do but Lord, may we also go out and proclaim this truth as you call us to do as well. So Lord, help us here today. Reveal your spirit, your truth into our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.